This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hello, everyone. So just very briefly, uh, Albert and I have been coordinating the seminar series, and we just uh, wanted to thank all the faculty for the nominations and for hosting our speakers, organizing agendas, and coordinating with every speaker. Um, we also wanted to point out that we made um, efforts in order to try to keep the seminar series uh, as diverse as possible in terms of topics and representation. Um, and I think we got a pretty uh, good lineup for this series. So I hope every Thursday we have a packed room like this. Um, also, I want to echo the uh, thanking the graduate students for stepping up and signing up to help us organizing the socials and, and keep building community. And of course, Robert and Nicole for helping us with uh, coordinating all this. Uh, so today's seminar is co-sponsored by ESPEN and the Meyer Center for Research on Native American Issues. And our faculty host today, Peter Nelson, uh, who's affiliated with both ESPEN and, ESPEN and the center, is going to introduce our speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, um, hello and welcome everyone. Um, I'm Peter Nelson. I'm, uh, as Lau uh, mentioned, jointly appointed in ESPEM as well as in uh, Ethnic Studies and affiliated on campus with the Archaeological Research Facility and Joseph A. Meyer Center um, for research on Native American issues. Um, it's my great pleasure to be your host today um, and introduce our uh, esteemed speaker, uh, Clint Carroll. Um, before we get into the introduction, I'd just like you to um, turn off your cell phones, uh, make sure to have those off so that you have no uh, interruptions. And um, I'd also like to then uh, give a land acknowledgement as well. So I wanna start by acknowledging that uh, UC Berkeley uh, sits on the territory of Kuchun, which is the ancestral and unceded land of the Chichenyo Ohlone people. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the Ohlone people. Uh, we recognize that every member of the Berkeley community uh, has benefited and continues to benefit uh, from the use and occupation of this land uh, since the institution's founding in 1868. Consistent with the university's values uh, of community and diversity, we have a responsibility to acknowledge and make visible the university's relationship to Native peoples. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm Indigenous sovereignty and our commitment to hold uh, the university more accountable to the needs of Native American and Indigenous peoples. And hopefully that land acknowledgement will go beyond just words to uh, actions of all of us in the room and beyond uh, to how we can think about supporting Ohlone people and um, efforts that they have here in the East Bay. So with that, I'd like to thank our sponsors. So it's my uh, pleasure to welcome you to today's event. And those sponsors are the Joseph A. Meyer Center for Research on Native American Issues, uh, the Native American Studies Program, Native American Student Development, uh, the Native Amer uh, American Indian Graduate Program, 
the American Indian Graduate Student Association, and the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management. And I think both uh, me and Clint have um, had some uh, interaction with the uh, and involvement in uh, AIGP and EGSA as well. So um, it's really great to to have you know former members of um, these organizations here uh, speaking today. Um, so we've been eagerly awaiting this event, uh, which was scheduled to take place over two years ago, and unfortunately postponed due to uh, COVID, this pandemic that we're all in. Um, and in the meantime, we've learned how to do hybrid events. So we have this offered on Zoom, uh, but fortunately uh, here again in person. So um, welcome to those of you also on uh, the Zoom call. We will not ignore you. Um, you have the Q&A feature uh, through Zoom and we'll be uh, collecting those questions uh, for after the session uh, to uh, ask our speaker, speaker today. So uh, the format of the event is going to be, uh, we'll have 45 minutes uh, for uh, the, the main talk by Professor Carroll, uh, followed by Q&A after that. And then after the event, uh, we'd like to invite you to a reception uh, in the courtyard with snacks and more informal discussion uh, afterwards. So um, I'm delighted and honored to introduce today's speaker today, uh, Professor uh, Clint Carroll, who is Associate Professor of uh, Ethnic Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, he received his doctorate here at Cal in Environmental Science Policy and Management. And it's also very great timing um, that he's here uh, with us today um, and doing this visit now with uh, homecoming this weekend. Extra significant. <laughs> so uh, Professor Carroll is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and works closely uh, with Cherokee people in Oklahoma on issues of land conservation and the perpetuation of uh, land-based knowledge and ways of life. Um, he's received a number of awards. Uh, one of the more current ones is uh, an NSF or National Science Foundation Faculty Early Career Development Award. Um, uh, a number of publications peer-reviewed, as well as his most current book, Roots of Our Renewal, uh, Ethnobotany and Cherokee Environmental Governance, explores how uh, tribal natural resource managers navigate the material and structural conditions of settler colonialism, as well as how uh, recent efforts in cultural revitalization are informing such practices um, uh, through traditional forms of decision-making and local environmental knowledge. Uh, so if you're interested in uh, following Professor Carroll's uh, career, learning a little bit more about that and how he's developed his interdisciplinary work, um, I just listened to this wonderful uh, interview on the Heritage Voices podcast, which is a wonderful podcast but if you're interested in uh, Professor Carroll's interview, that's episode 64, um, which you can take with you um, after this uh, presentation. But fortunately, we have Professor Carroll here in person right now. So please join me in welcoming Professor Carroll. Well, Peter, thank you. Um, um, wow, thank you all for being here. I'm so happy and thrilled to be back. Um, I have a few preparatory remarks. First, 
gratitude uh, to you all for being here, to the Meyer Center, uh, the uh, Department of Environmental Science Policy Management. Why am I saying that? It's ESPOM, right? Um, the American Indian Graduate Program and uh, the uh, Indigenous Environmental Studies Lab Group. Thank you, Peter, and all the amazing grad students who I had the privilege to meet uh, yesterday, um, as well as, um, oh, excuse me, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Deborah, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, Martin Sanchez Jankowski, who's not able to be here today, the director of the Meyer Center. I want to extend a thanks to him as well. Um, hello, Nancy Peluso, um, Louise, I think you're out there. We didn't have a chance to connect uh, before this started, but I know she's uh, joining from Zoom. I want to give a shout out to Nathan Sayer, if you're there, I don't know, um, in geography, Tom Bielsi in ethnic studies, and uh, of course, Lynn Hunsinger, all of whom were on my uh, dissertation committee. So um, how awesome is it to be back after all this time and after two years of waiting through the pandemic? And I know we're still in it, um, but I'm just thrilled to be back here at Berkeley, um, first time since 2011, so over 10 years. Um, uh, so I'm a first-gen student. Um, I, I never thought I'd A, go to Berkeley, uh, let alone graduate, get a job, publish a book, and then be invited back to Berkeley to speak. So I just want to thank all my advisors, uh, my fellow Espen grad students, one of whom I know is here, Dan Fahey. I don't know if anybody else is in the audience, but uh, anyway, hi to everybody. Um, and a special shout out to AXA uh, members, current leadership, past leadership, um, and the, the, the one who receives the, the award for the biggest and warmest smile, uh, Carmen Foghorn, who's the previous director of the American Indian Graduate Program and who helped me get connected to the Native community at Cal and was just a lifesaver in that regard. So thank you all. Um, you might notice there's a change of title. I promise I'll talk about a lot of the stuff that was in the abstract. Um, but for such a homecoming, I thought uh, it's apropos to engage the work of your advisor while you're here. And this is not new to Nancy. Nancy generously uh, attended a symposium talk in which I was really struggling through some of this. And I still struggle through with it. But I just wanted to um, uh, thank you, Nancy, for all your comments and productive feedback. I'm still working through it. This is very much still a work in progress. I don't know, some people may be super productive during the pandemic, but everything for me has just been up in the air. I've been working on this since uh, spring of 21. I presented it in May at a symposium, which um, I'm working with a collective of scholars that I'll mention uh, later today on indigenous political ecologies. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I'm, I'm a little nervous, uh, but I'm also excited to present this to you and really to hear what you all think. So um, with that, I'll go ahead and get started. The early periods of what is known as the U.S. federal Indian policy are defined in terms of the specific type of dispossession they entail. While the removal era of the 1830s forcibly relocated tribes hundreds and thousands of miles from their traditional homelands, the creation of reservations beginning in the mid-1800s also entailed numerous relocations via treaties and land sessions. The early U.S. conservation movement, coinciding roughly with the establishment of Indian reservations, excluded Native peoples from former hunting and gathering areas in the name of wilderness preservation. The allotment area era from about 1887 to 1934 broke up Indigenous systems of communal land ownership and open native lands to speculators and the market. Since this time, access has become a principal issue for native peoples, specifically the ability 
to access lands and waters through which to enact culturally sustaining practices and ceremonies that are tied to relations of reciprocal care. This paper aims to think through the myriad challenges indigenous peoples in North America face regarding access to land and water. I will discuss how numerous and compounding obstacles inhibit our uh, continuation of land and water-based practices and ways of life, as well as how indigenous nations are confronting these challenges using numerous pathways and strategies. The project as a whole engages with work in political ecology on access theory, and in doing so seeks to reframe resource access from the unique political and relational perspectives of indigenous nations and settler states. As such, I draw heavily on theory and scholarship in critical indigenous studies, centering work by scholars whose contributions to this field often transgress disciplinary boundaries and who currently inhabit spaces in geography and anthropology. This paper and my broader research goals are in dialogue with and in relationship to a community of scholars whose work at these intersections is seeking to advance interventions in political ecology that center critical indigenous analyses of settler colonialism, relationality, resurgence, and environmental governance. First, I will offer a discussion of access theory from within political ecology, followed by an engagement with indigenous studies along two broad categories, coloniality and relationality. Next, I will present on current and related projects regarding access for Cherokee people in Oklahoma, and I'll conclude by gesturing to some future directions and with a brief discussion of the land back movement. Okay, so a little bit of background. Uh, Some of you may have read and heard all this before, but bear with me because it helps kind of set things up for those who may not have. So... um, Access theory and political ecology. So access theory arose out of the work of political ecologist Nancy Peluso and Jesse Rebo in their co-authored piece published in Rural Sociology titled A Theory of Access. And that was originally published in 2003. The theory illuminates the complex and multifaceted nature of access to natural resources and offers a framework for understanding people's, quote, ability to benefit from things. Their work opened up new ways of thinking about resource access that account for situations outside of rights-based legal mechanisms or the ownership of property. Beyond the singular view of resource access as stemming from legal rights, Ribot and Peluso assert that understanding people's access or lack thereof must center an assessment of their ability to benefit from resources. In other words, property rights do not always amount to a resource user's ability to benefit from that which the property contains. Rebo and Peluso show how power relations embedded in technology, capital, markets, labor, knowledge, authority, identity, and social relations have a direct effect on this ability. They conceptualize such powers as mechanisms of access by which people are able to generate abilities to benefit from resources. As such, their framework allows for both a structural, uh, both structural analyses of access, uh, employing a Marxist political com- economy approach that, um, excuse me, to power as shaped by societal forces, and discursive analyses uh, taking a Foucauldian approach that locates power in the production and reproduction of social discourses that can determine and reinforce what is deemed legitimate. The theory presents access mapping 
as a tool to understand the dynamics of these processes in disparate contexts and locations. A theory of access, the article has garnered widespread application in political ecology and related fields, and was recently the subject of a special issue of Society and Natural Resources. The special issue offers a review of the literature that has substantially engaged or critiqued access theory, original contributions from authors who seek to extend it, and a postscript by Peluso and Rebo that revisits the theory in light of the work it has inspired over the previous 17 years, probably more than that, um, since I first wrote this last year. So 18 years. Uh, clearly, Rebo and Peluso's work has earned a position of esteem and influence and has improved political ecologists' ability to make sense of how people access and benefit from natural resources. Access theory offers an expanded set of analytical tools for understanding environmental governance and resource allocation, issues that are central to work in political ecology. As a subfield that spans scholarship in human geography and cultural anthropology, political ecology has centered the political and economic causes of environmental degradation and conflict, largely in response to other narratives that seek to explain away environmental injustice in terms of natural, quote-unquote, natural and therefore apolitical forces. Political ecology began to solidify as a distinct area of inquiry in the 1980s, stemming from work that sought a plurality of explanations and definitions of land degradation in the global south, with a focus on a broadly defined political economy, to quote Blakey and Brookfield um, in their book in 1987. In other words, political ecology began as an approach to understanding the relationship between nature and capital and the implications and manifestations of these forces for marginalized communities. The subfield is still largely informed by a Marxist interpretation of political economy and its approach to human environment relations and politics. These origins of the subfield were also situated within critical development studies, which likewise centered a Marxist critique of capitalism and the global inequities produced through capitalist development. In this context, political ecology and access theory have provided useful tools and frameworks for understanding the complexities of environmental politics and how marginalized people navigate contested terrains that are influenced by both structural and discursive mechanisms of power and control. And yet, the origins and continued focus of political ecology in the global south as well as the theoretical approaches many in the field employ and center in their analyses, present limitations when scholars attempt to apply these tools and frameworks to environmental politics within settler states. And this is changing. And Nancy sent me some awesome readings that I'm sifting through and making sense of. And, and so this, again, is a work in progress that is adapting to newer stuff that's come out um, that, that does address uh, settler colonialism, specifically in places like the United States and Canada and beyond. With some notable exceptions, political ecology has not made much more headway in its attempt to address so-called first world issues since the original call by Louise Fortman to bring these tools back home to the United States almost three decades ago. Critical voices in indigenous studies have sought to address this lacuna, uh, as well as scholars writing at the intersections of political ecology and race. Uh, however, save for a manifesto authored by a, a collective of political ecologists in 2019, uh, the limited uptake of the contributions made from Indigenous Studies scholars has led to little influence on political ecology and related fields' core presuppositions, as I will discuss in the following section. 
Political ecology and indigenous studies share a central focus on land and resource politics that, although different in approach, can augment each other if engaged thoughtfully. I'm co currently collaborating with the Scholars Collective to advance such an emergent field of theory, empirical investigation, and ethical praxis that draws from anthropology, geography, and closely related fields contemporary responses to the conditions of the Anthropocene and Native American and First Nations. This work is driven by two core insights. One, notwithstanding the important contributions that I mentioned that are, are more recent, political ecology has tended to engage indigeneity as case rather than as a concept or theory, thus limiting scholars' engagement with indigenous epistemic and methodological approaches. And two, where political ecologists tend to see the environment as always already political. An indigenous political ecology approach sees the political as always already environmental. That is to say for indigenous peoples subsumed within settler colonial borders, legal orders and ongoing coloniality, political struggles are inseparable from our degree of connection to and therefore our ability to access our lands and waters. Further, indigenous studies starts from the epistemic position of relationality with all life. This position emanates from the diverse ontological and ethical frameworks expressed in indigenous people's relationships to land, water, and more than human beings, and which challenge Marxist materialist approaches to property and natural resources. While several strands of recent scholarship, such as new materialisms, actor network theory, posthumanisms, and anthropology's ontological turn, have sought to engage indigenous relational frameworks and ontologies, this has often been done to the exclusion of numerous and longstanding works in indigenous studies. And while political ecology has recently made important headway in critically engaging indigenous studies work, and I'm thinking of uh, Nick Hanen and Megan Ibarra's recent, uh, relatively recent piece in Antipode, um, uh, uh, a number of other scholars, including Charlene Mollett uh, and, and many others. Uh, scholarship on access has yet to address how indigenous legal, political, and ontological difference reframe core questions and analytical assumptions. Taking the recent revisiting of access theory and the special issue of society and natural resources, which I think uh, came out in 2020, uh, as a point of departure, in what follows, I discuss uh, points of both difference and convergence with critical indigenous studies with the intent to illuminate further areas of engagement uh, in both access theory and political ecology broadly. I do so by focusing on two main categories of analysis, coloniality and relationality. Peruvian decolonial scholar Anibal Quijano describes coloniality as the ongoing relations of domination that persist even after colonialism as an explicit political order has ceased. The particular form of coloniality that we've come to discuss in places like the United States and Canada is, of course, settler colonialism. Drawing from Patrick Wolfe's description of settler colonialism as a fundamentally destructive structure geared toward eliminating indigenous peoples, I've highlighted the Cherokee words above to help frame my discussion. Although they don't serve as exact translations for coloniality or colonialism, it's notable that they closely resemble our words for hunger, death, and broken. So um, 
you see here, Ayostanohas um, go eight. Ayostanohas uh, thinks so it destroys something habitually to destroy it. Uh, hunger is Uyosi, so think. Death, Ayohu, he think. And broken, Uyoja, so this Ayo, Uyo is very uh, common or similar throughout these different words that express uh, these concepts and kind of help make sense of how Cherokee people think of destruction, death, things that are bad, essentially. Beth Rose Middleton writes, quote, investigating coloniality is central to indigenous political ecology, prompting researchers uh, to engage fully with indigenous epistemologies and decolonial futures, end quote. Given that both access theory and political ecology are situated within Marxist political economy, they therefore tend to frame their analyses around resource users and their interactions and negotiations with local, extra-local and state networks of power, rather than centering indigeneity per se. In the context of settler states especially, this approach neglects the role of coloniality as a relevant and interrelated dynamic of capitalism that weighs heavily on issues of land, property, and enclosure. So once again, I acknowledge the recent work by uh, folks like Charlene Mollett and others that have begun to significantly change this tendency, at least in the context of political ecology. And I hope I can add a little to this today. Dene scholar Glenn Colthard's work in Red Skin, White Masks engages Marxist theory through a framework of ongoing colonial relations of power in settler states. I draw from his work to elucidate how we might re-examine access theory using the insights he provides. Colthard presents correctives that help adjust Marx's theory of primitive accumulation to account for the unique political context of indigenous peoples in Canada. He reframes primitive accumulation as an ongoing process of indigenous dispossession from the land that creates the conditions for a politics of state recognition, which produces and maintains colonial forms of domination. Central to my discussion here is how Coulthard rejects notions of normative developmentalism that take for granted the commons as a tabula rasa for class-centered anti-capitalist resistance. Instead, Coulthard shifts the focus to the colonial relation as a key component of capitalist accumulation, illuminating the grounded forms of indigenous resistance that center radically different relationships to land and exceed a standard Marxist materialist framework. From this approach, from this angle, Coulthard views the colonial frame as, quote, the inherited background field within which market, racist, patriarchal, and state relations converge to facilitate a certain power effect. Redirecting analysis from the capital relation to the colonial relation in access theory opens up room for engagement with the unique political context and status of indigenous nations and settler states as they are informed by both colonial histories and ongoing coloniality. Here, coloniality takes on distinctive forms that complicate issues of legal rights, power, and resource use. For example, indigenous treaty rights are not necessarily property rights. They are reserved rights to hunt, fish, and gather beyond reservation boundaries. They carry obligations to care for the land and are based in legal and political relations between indigenous nations and settler states. Further, there are multiple scales and registers of power created by settler coloniality that complicate this area of access theory, 
namely the internal dynamics of tribal governance and the nested sovereignty of indigenous nations, to borrow a phrase from Audrey Simpson. Lastly, the practice of using resources for subsistence may differ drastically due to increased levels of capitalist incorporation and encroachment that indigenous nations have been subjected to by virtue of settler occupation of their homelands. In other words, indigenous people may find themselves without the time to gather wild plants due to the demands of wage labor, as well as restrictions imposed by property and fence lines, the overgrowth of brush due to colonial policies against cultural burning, and or the presence of a parking lot where the desired plants once grew. Dene geographer Andrew Curley discusses another important aspect of access in the colonial relation with regard to Indian water settlements throughout the Western United States. Curley describes how massive water development projects like the Central Arizona Project have diverted water to settler metropoles, changing ecosystems and thus negatively impacting customary modes of water access, use, governance, and sharing among and between indigenous nations. The water settlement process, as controlled and defined by Western water law, disregards this history of indigenous water governance and seeks to codify tribal water rights in terms of acre feet and productive use. Moreover, they limit access to settler water infrastructure, such as the Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project, which exacerbates current inequities experienced by tribal communities, namely the absence of running water in many Diné homes. Thus, as Curley writes, Indian water settlements seek both to enclose indigenous water resources and to redefine indigenous relationships to water itself through the politics of recognition. Elsewhere, I've explored the politics of access in the Cherokee Nation within internal processes of gatekeeping, uh, limited, uh, excuse me, gatekeeping limited tribal lands for the purposes of sustainably managing sensitive plant populations. In the context of a group of elders who work to influence tribal land policy, I described how access to authority impacted the ability to benefit from resources, in this case, their proposal for establishing gathering permits on tribal lands. In such cases, access theory offers useful tools for understanding how people gain, maintain, and control access to land and or water and the benefits they may accrue in doing so. And yet, as I mentioned previously, numerous scales of power complicate the heuristic ability of access theory, what I've termed a double state dynamic, referring to the use of state forms by tribal governments within a larger colonial state, poses questions about the coloniality of access when tribal resource managers are tasked with gatekeeping a greatly reduced and checkerboarded mm -hmm. tribal land base as a result of settler encroachment and land theft. Thus, by engaging with indigenous studies, scholarship, and thereby accounting for the complexities of coloniality and the colonial relation in settler states, political ecology and access theory can enhance and expand their current theoretical and empirical reach. I was supposed to show this so that you all wouldn't fall asleep, or at least you could have a pretty picture to fall asleep to. Uh, I promise to advance the next one a little quicker. An expansive notion of kinship and relationality is expressed in the Cherokee language as We are all related. 
This phrase is understood to extend beyond the human realm to include more than human beings and teaches us to acknowledge the interdependence and sacredness of life in all its forms. Cherokee elder and spiritual leader Crosland Smith refer to these, refers to these concepts as original teachings that provide moral, ethical, and spiritual guidelines for how we treat each other, the land and waters, and our more than human plant and animal relatives. They also provide insight for how we acknowledge our connections to the past through our ancestor spirits and our responsibilities to the future through those who have not yet come into the world. Numerous other indigenous scholars have discussed at length land-based ethical frameworks and relationality in their work, stemming from their own cultural and ontological positionings. Omoshkegawak's Cree scholar Michelle Daigle describes the law of as a distinct, and forgive me if I butchered that word, but uh, as a distinct way of life that honors one's kinship relations, including those with the natural and spiritual worlds. And that informs a collective Omoshkegawak notion of self-determination. Raramuri scholar Enrique Salmon explains the notion of iwigara as the interconnected kinship of all life, acknowledged through the sharing of breath, and the earth itself. Such grounded notions of kinship and responsibility to land and life contribute to theories of relationality that animate and inform indigenous studies work on environmental governance and earth-based ways of knowing and being. Kucha Rizling uh, Baldi, who is Hupa, Yurok, and Karuk, and Melanie Yazi, who is Dene, discuss what they term radical relationality which articulates an indigenous feminist framework of care and kinship among all beings and guides a collective vision of counter-hegemonic and decolonial indigenous resistance. In their words, quote, radical relationality is simply the ontology of being in relation to that describes all life and futurity, keeping ourselves open to the possibility of making new relatives is one of the essential functions of life and indeed, decolonization, end quote. Goenpool scholar Eileen Morton Robinson states, quote, relationality forms the conditions of possibility for coming to know and producing knowledge through research in a given time, place, and land. For Morton Robinson, relationality is the core presupposition of the indigenous social research paradigm. These and many other scholars in indigenous studies reaching back decades, most notably through the foundational work of Dakota scholar Vine Gloria Jr., have articulate, articulated a critical indigenous studies framework for relationality that has served to guide our methodologies, theoretical approaches, and scholarly practices, which are themselves in relation to the communities with whom we work. Indigenous theories of relationality offer access theory and political ecology additional framings for understanding benefit flows that include the land, waters, and more than humans, as well as human communities. As Sybil Diver and her co-authors have articulated, such framings have also account for reciprocal relations, that's their term, uh, with lands and waterways that many indigenous and local communities are obligated to uphold for their mutual well-being and flourishing. This allows for a shift in the units of analysis and access theory when appropriate and applicable from resource users to land caretakers, 
and from the ability of uh, ability to benefit from things to the ability to enact practices that promote mutual flourishing. A shift of this sort, rather than what some might view as eschewing political ecology's focus on power and politics, actually enables clearer understandings of how colonial power operates in relation to indigenous epistemologies. Returning to Coulthard, when we reframe Marxist analyses to center the colonial relation and thereby reject the notion that modernity is exclusively cast in post-Enlightenment and Western terms, it opens up space to consider radically different forms of resistance and governance that are based in relationships to the more than human world and that include but also exceed materiality. When land and water are viewed, as in many indigenous ontologies, as sentient and agentive sources of knowledge, teachers, and persons, then access to land and water also becomes access to knowledge, access to the authority and jurisdiction they possess as rights-bearing persons, and access to kin, both in the sense of viewing the land and water as relatives and in the sense of understanding waterways as uh, kin connectors. Uh, barring from the work of Michelle Daigle, again, who writes about waterways in that way as being uh, roots of uh, like R-O-U-T-E-S of access to other communities and therefore human and more than human kin via those waterways. For indigenous studies, then, we can view the term access as an idiom for the need to maintain relationality with the more than human world. The issue for indigenous strategies and movements to regain access to land and waters is the threat of lost relationships and the negative effects this has on indigenous peoplehood, governance, mental and physical health, and what Potawatomi scholar Kyle White terms collective continuance, or, quote, an indigenous community's capacity to adapt in ways sufficient for its members' livelihoods to flourish into the future. So what follows is a discussion of my ongoing research with my tribal community around issues of access in Oklahoma. So I hope to kind of anchor some of what I've been saying way up here into the actual uh, praxis and work that we do together. My current research complicates and adds to political ec ecological theories of resource access in settler state contexts and also seeks to contribute to indigenous conservation strategies and land education programs that are informed and inspired by decolonial and indigenous resurgence scholarship. Much of my work is born out of and an ongoing relationship to the Cherokee Nation Medicine Keepers, a small group of Cherokee elders whose mission is to protect Cherokee lands in Oklahoma and to perpetuate their land-based knowledge among future and younger generations. The group formed in 2008, spurred by meetings that I helped to facilitate uh, to discuss, discuss critical issues surrounding Cherokee plant knowledge. Within their mission, they conceived the statement, or to keep the medicine going, which, along with their formerly adopted name, the Cherokee Medicine Keepers, acknowledges the role that traditional medicine plays in maintaining Cherokee, Cherokee's relationships to land. Cherokee plant medicine includes not only the chemical properties of the plants that act as medicine, but also the faith and spirituality of the patient and healer. It is especially important to revitalize Cherokee plant knowledge because it sustains a way of life centered on spirituality and relationships to 
to the land and cosmos. So I'm currently working on a five-year uh, National Science Foundation project that Peter mentioned that seeks to understand how Cherokee people in northeastern Oklahoma are responding to limited resource access in the context of checkerboarded landscapes and a, a changing climate. Um, another image here of the Cherokee Nation Reservation, uh, but this gives you a sense of geographically what I'm talking about if you know the polygon of the uh, state of Oklahoma, what is now called the state of Oklahoma. This uh, cutout here and this image here represents the Cherokee Nation Reservation lands, which are about 4.42 um, uh, million acres in their totality, like within the border. Uh, but this is what I'm talking about when I say checkerboarded and fractionated land bases is that the, the image uh, shows in the dark uh, uh, gray or the black area, that's the extent of the lands that we've maintained. Um, the rest is has been opened up as a result of the allotment policy to uh, privatization. Um, these are tribal trust lands, and so it doesn't include the map. This map doesn't include uh, individual trust lands, um, but it's still a representation of the stark um, uh, loss of lands that uh, Cherokee people experienced as a result of Oklahoma State and the allotment policy. <clears throat> so we're we are working to uh, excuse me. We are building a multi-sided community-based project to understand uh, one how Cherokee people are navigating and responding to ongoing social and environmental challenges, including knowledge loss, language loss, and the decreasing access to and availability of subsistence resources. Uh, two, how Cherokee people see this influencing their overall health. And three, how their actions might inform comprehensive strategies for climate change adaptation, tribal land conservation, and cultural revitalization. As an integrated research and education project, the Medicine Keepers and I, along with the team of tribal biologists and specialists, are working with a cohort of five Cherokee students to train them in indigenous and Western approaches to science, employing, employing Cherokee knowledge and language, botany, biology, and tribal natural resource management strategies. This educational component draws from other models of indigenous land-based education, and aims to build a cohort of tribal environmental leaders that can creatively address future issues from both grounded and diverse perspectives. And I'll get into what, that, what I mean by that in a second. For Cherokees, as is common among uh, indigenous communities, traditional use of the land's gifts entails sustainable harvesting practices that are vital to their well-being. In turn, the transmission of such practices to younger generations ensures the sustained relationship that Cherokees have with a particular plant or animal. Through our project, we take the approach that research on tribal resource access can inform tribal policy and management and thus contribute to both what I call resource and relationship-based approaches to tribal environmental govern governance. In other words, approaches that are both mindful of the discourses and power relations and working with state and federal agencies and that can uphold as well traditional Cherokee relationships to the land. For example, Cherokee elders stress that when seeking plant medicine, one should not uproot the first identified plant. Rather, one must pass over at least four plant individuals before commencing to gather. This ensures that one does not inadvertently remove the last remaining plant of that species in that specific area, and thus fosters its continued flourishing. Through our current research, my students and I are asking, 
How might impeded resource access affect such a, such a principle? Does it intensify as one might expect in a situation of limited resources? Or is the principle compromised in cases when an individual only has access to two or three plants of the desired species? Could tribal resource managers help address these issues by targeting specific areas for conservation? If so, by what mechanisms would these conservation areas be established? How could such protected areas leverage tribal resources while also respecting local community autonomy and authority? And I'm thinking about Beth Middleton's work, Beth Rose Middleton's work again um, on cultural conservation easements and land, native land trusts um, that acknowledge that um, um, act of just gaining access to a place as being significant, significant even if it's not an outright uh, reacquisition of property. So our work in this project seeks to inform and enhance theories of access through an in-depth analysis of Cherokee communities that have been severely impacted by arguably one of the most complicated and devastating colonial land policies, the General Allotment Act of 1887 that I mentioned previously. The Allotment Act broke up many American Indian land bases that were formerly communally owned and forcibly replaced them with a system of private property. The policy was intended to assimilate American Indians into an agrarian way of life via Euro-American notions of industriousness and private land ownership. The act disregarded former tribal property law and in many cases marked the near obliteration of tribal sovereignty. Each head of household received a 160-acre plot. Lands that were not allotted to individuals were declared surplus lands and were sold and open to non-Indian settlement. The allotment policy ultimately resulted in the loss of over 4 million acres of land for the Cherokee Nation due to, quote, surplus sales, land swindlers, and a uh, foreign system of property taxes. Today, both rural Cherokee communities and tribal resource managers must contend with the legacy of this uh, era of federal Indian policy in the form of limited access to resources and limited jurisdiction within historical tribal boundaries. So as I mentioned previously, sparse tribal lands inhibit access to natural resources like medicinal or nutritional plants and complicate tribal systems of resource management that must balance granting tribal citizens access to limited lands with the conservation of limited resources. The legacy of allotment has also created severe impediments to tribal land conservation and environmental governance. Fractionated lands pose an obstacle for the creation of consolidation, excuse me, consolidated conservation areas without bisecting ecosystems or plant population locations. The presence of hostile neighboring landowners creates tensions and doubts surrounding the effectiveness of such tribal conservation enclosures. And perhaps most significantly, climate change threatens the vitality and availability of important, important plants within known areas of tribal and individual trust lands. Inherent to maintaining relationality with the land is continuing the practices associated with environmental knowledge. In a recent project I carried out with the medicine keepers, numerous elders stressed that if the people don't use the plants, the creator will take them away. This philosophy assumes that proper, respectful use of plants for medicine, food, and crafts contributes to the well-being of plant communities through caretaking practices that sustain them. Thus, many Cherokees feel a profound obligation to care for their Oklahoma lands, even while maintaining relationships to the original homelands 
in the east. And I didn't mention that, but I'm assuming many of you already know that these aren't our homelands. These are the lands that we were forcibly relocated to um, in the late 1830s. Um, in other cases, uh, in fact, my ancestry, um, I'm uh, descended from people who moved out even before the Trail of Tears because of all the violence that was happening in the homelands um, uh, that preceded the Trail of Tears. As one of my elders put it, we are obligated to, quote, honor the spirit of the land or honor the spirit of this land, as in the current reservation land. And that's a matter of upholding our relationships with the non-human world, with place, and with the creator. Doing this entails passing on the gifts that the creator gave Cherokees, embodied in both the ancient environmental knowledge that remains from the homelands. There's a lot of similarities between uh, the southeastern U.S., where our homelands are located, uh, present-day Great Smoky Mountains, um, and eastern, northeastern Oklahoma, what is now uh, known as northeastern Oklahoma. Um, as well as the new knowledge that Cherokees received and developed after their arrival in the Western lands. It entails maintaining the responsibility to act as caretakers of a place that, while it is not the homeland, is nevertheless a homeland. To honor the spirit of the land is to acknowledge and act on the responsibilities that come with being indigenous displaced from our original homelands or not. And so this is just kind of a preview of the previous title um, that I've actually published that work already in an edited volume um, uh, that came out, I think, uh, in 2021. Uh, and it's exploring this concept of relational continuity. Um, and so if you want to you know, find out about that, I'm happy to share that with you. Um, <clears throat> And yet, as many other indigenous nations know, human-induced climate change and contemporary ag agricultural and development practices compromise our ability to maintain our relationships to the land. The Cherokee no Nation is located at the confluence of two vastly different climate zones. To the west, a semi-arid tall grass prairie zone, and to the east, an eastern deciduous forest zone. Documented and projected rising temperatures, along with landscape fragmentation caused by human activities, are creating significant stress on native plant habitats across the Great Plains and the Southeast. These forces threaten the health of plant communities supported by eastern deciduous forests, which Cherokee people continue to rely on for medicine, food, crafts, and other cultural and economic purposes. The resulting species lost and, and shifting species ranges further inhibit our people's access to these plants. And as our tribal biologist Pat Gwynn has noted, could be viewed as no less than another force removal, only this time we're staying put. These issues call for a more complete understanding of resource access in rural Cherokee Nation communities and an assessment of where the Cherokee Nation tribal government could best direct its energies toward ameliorating current conditions for resource access. As expressed in the questions I posed earlier, the project seeks to incorporate the legal and technical expertise of tribal officials who operate from within the Cherokee Nation's formal governmental structure and can leverage the corresponding political capital to aid in enabling increased access to lands and resources. We also aim to center the agency and resiliency of rural Cherokee individuals and communities through a participatory mapping phase of the project that will privilege local knowledge and priorities for resource access, as well as decentralized community govern governance of local conservation areas. Okay, 
almost to the conclusion, so bear with me. Am I good on time relatively? Yeah. You should be close. Okay, I'm gonna skip ahead to the, um, the conclusion so I can wrap up, we can have a little time for Q and A. Um, so this is a, an image that is an excerpt of a photo voice video project that I did with the medicine keepers. It's available on YouTube. And if you go like Google my profile page, you'll um, find a link to my um, the project website that has this on there. And so anyway, I'm just highlighting this picture to, to show uh, a quote and an image taken from one of the medicine keepers about access. Uh, this is a generated code cloud from some of our preliminary sur uh, surveys that we were doing. Again, the pandemic really upset, uh, you know, paused our work for two and a half years. And so we were only able to get to the survey work before that hit. Uh, we're going to start in-depth interviews in the fall. So I'm excited that we're resuming the project activities as of early August this year. Uh, I'm going to skip over this, but this is also a, an element that I had written about regarding access uh, through a, an agreement that was established with Buffalo National River. So you see the Park Service uh, person, the staff person on the right. Uh, this is uh, Gary Van and a University of Arizona researcher um, uh, talking about, I think that's poke, um, uh, and it's a type of plant that's used for food when it's uh, young and uh, fresh. Anyway, uh, the Cherokee Nation established an agreement to gather plants within Buffalo National River, which is um, uh, pretty monumental uh, and is only about three hours away to the east of Tahlequah, which is the tribal capital in, in Oklahoma and the Cherokee Nation. Um, I know it's kind of a cumbersome URL, but if you want to know more about the, the project, uh, there's a, a link. Uh, this is just uh, an image of the students and, and Cherokee Nation staff uh, doing an ethnobotany hike through uh, attractive tribal land that was recently put into con conservation status by the Cherokee Nation. Um, also a pretty monumental thing. Uh, again, it's not reacquiring land. It's using existing tribal um, tracks, uh, but, but marking them, designating them as uh, for cultural use only, as opposed to some of the other issues with land use that we struggle with regarding the inherited uh, practices uh, from the BIA, like cattle grazing leases, uh, and then clear-cutting um, oak hickory forests to plant uh, loblolly pines for, um, for the market. Uh, just an image of one of our activities at that same place, the, um, the conservation area. The medicine keepers uh, named it. They christened it uh, uh, in, in the language. It's Nawatohia Dung Nawamotei, which means the peaceful place of medicine. Uh, and this is Anna Sixpillar and John Ross teaching the students and me how to make kanuchi, which is, a, I mentioned this uh, yesterday at lunch, uh, but it's a traditional dish that's made from hickory nuts. Um, you crack them in that stone, that mortar and pestle, and then you kind of pound them down in this uh, kanon, what we call a kanon. It's a wooden stump that's been hollowed out, and you use a, a, a pounder, a stosti, to, to pound that uh, into a, a meal that you then form into a ball, and you can cook that later. It's delicious. It's, um, you can typically flavor it with sugar, or you can make it salty. You add hominy or rice, whatever you prefer. Okay. So I'm skipping ahead, uh, maybe give me five more minutes and we'll be done. So I, I hope to constructively engage access theory from indigenous studies and in the process point, point to some important considerations that account for the different political and ontolo ontological contexts of indigeneity in settler states. This holds true for pol uh, political ecology too. 
I maintain that there are fruitful possibilities in such engagement, specifically in understanding how the critical theoretical tools of indigenous studies can be useful for political ecology and vice versa. In some, more than an application of access theory to indigenous contexts, I'm arguing for pushing the concept of access to be in dialogue with indigenous thought and theory. As a concluding gesture toward future directions and possibilities, I'd like to end with some thoughts on Land Back, a recent hashtag, but a movement that is centuries in the making. The multiple and nuanced registers for Land Back have, directed, have direct relevance for indigenous access. For example, take this statement from the Land Back Editorial Collective, published in their special issue of Briar Patch Magazine in September of 2020. When we say land back, we aren't asking for just the ground or for a piece of paper that allows us to tear up and pollute the earth. We want the system that is land to be alive so that it can perpetuate itself and perpetuate us as an extension of itself. That's what we want back, our place in keeping land alive and spiritually connected. So we can think of numerous pathways toward this goal including one, the assertion of jurisdictional authority to protect and care for our lands and thereby enact ontologies of care, to use Shiri Pasternak's phrase. Two, the reclamation and revitalization of our knowledges and languages that are born out of such ontologies. And three, the demand for remediation and restoration of lands that have been contaminated beyond recognition by settler capitalist extractivism, among many others not least of which is, of course, the material demand for the return of stolen lands and wealth. Thus, land back is at once confrontational and aspirational. It poses a vision of the future that asks, what happens when authority is shifted? Granting indigenous nations access to an authority over lands based on indigenous principles of care promises to shift the conversation from inherent rights to inherent responsibilities the land and water that center their well-being and that of all human communities as well. This is the radical relationality that this movement offers, an insistence on alternatives rather than a replication of settler colonial land relations. Therein lies the strength of indigenous political ecologies or better indigenous political relationalities to help understand the potential of and therefore do the theoretical and empirical work to help envision futures in which indigenous nations can fully enact their relationality with a sentient and living land inhabited by more than human relatives and spirits and radical solidarity with all peoples. Well, don't. Thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.